Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Are spiritual gifts available today, or did they cease after the original apostles died? In this interview, I talked to Dr. Sam Storms about his own personal experience with speaking in tongues his biblical case for why gifts are available today, and how he makes room for them in his church services. Before delving in, I just want to clarify some quick vocabulary. You're going to hear two terms a lot, and I want to be sure you know what they mean. The first is cessationist. This is someone who believes spiritual gifts ceased with the death of the apostles. The other term is continuationist, which is someone who believes these manifestations continue right down to our own day. Now, I realize that among Restitutio listeners, there are lots of people in either of these categories. There are many of you who are cessationists, many of you who are continuationists. I just ask that you listen to this interview, and even if you disagree, can we all agree that the Bible is the standard by which we should make these decisions? That's really, I think, what will shine through in what Storms has to say. Dr. Sam Storms, has a Ph.D. from the University of Texas and has pastored for about 45 years in Texas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. He taught at Wheaton College for four years and now serves as the lead pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He's the founder of Enjoying God Ministries and serves on the boards of Desiring God Ministries, Bethlehem College and Seminary, and Acts 29 Network. He's the author of numerous published books and articles. We'll be mentioning those in the interview. And he describes himself as, quote, an amillennial, Calvinistic, charismatic, credo-baptistic, complementarian, Christian hedonist who loves his wife of 47 years, his two daughters, his four grandchildren, books, baseball, movies, and all things Oklahoma University. Here now is episode 310, Our Gifts of the Spirit, available today with Sam Storms. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, Glad to do it. Well, let's start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Christ. Yes, I was raised in a Christian home. <clears throat> Parents were both believers. One sister is a believer. I was raised Southern Baptist. It's difficult for me to pinpoint a time when I uh, came to Christ, although I made a public profession when I was nine years old. So I'm happy to date it to, to that moment. But I, I, you know, it's hard for me to envision or remember a time when I wasn't a believer. So I became a believer, I guess, technically, officially at the age of nine. And, and did you grow up in Oklahoma the whole time, or were you... Somewhere? I did. This was I, I was born and raised in Shawnee, Oklahoma. lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And then we moved out to Midland, Texas for four years, then back up to Oklahoma to Duncan, uh, where I went to high school, and then on to the University of Oklahoma, met my wife there, and we got married after our junior year at OU. After graduating, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay. Uh, was there from, uh, see what, 73 to 77, got the THM degree, was involved in pastoral ministry all during my years of seminary. So, so I really started in uh, full-time pastoral work in 1974. Wow. So that's uh, 45 years now. Ended up getting my PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas while I was pastoring there in Dallas. Uh, then moved up to Ardmore, Oklahoma, and pastored a church there for eight years. From there, I went to Kansas City and was uh, in a church for seven years. From there, up to Wheaton College near uh, Chicago, taught at Wheaton for four years. 
moved back to Kansas City, was there for four years. Wow. I'm going up and down I-35, north to south, south to north, and then uh, moved here to Oklahoma City in 2008. So I've been here for about 11 and a half years, and we're not moving again. Okay, <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about spiritual gifts, tongues, healings, and this this sort of subject. Uh, when did you first start thinking deeply about that? Was that something you were raised with, or something that you came to later? Well, I was definitely not raised with it. I was raised in a very anti-charismatic uh, home and a church setting. Uh, the first exposure I ever had to any of this was in the summer of 1970, which was the again that probably predates most of your listeners and you yourself, but. That was the summer that the Jesus Movement broke out in Southern California. Uh, I was in Southern California at a Campus Crusade project and was exposed to the charismatic renewal for the very first time there. Started reading up on the subject, and uh, God very graciously gifted me the gift of tongues in October of 1970. But I, I suppressed it and never made use of it for about 20 years largely out of uh, fear. I was told that uh, back then Campus Crusade was very anti-charismatic. It's not anymore, but I was told that if I continued in that practice, I couldn't be a, a leader in the in the movement, and I had intentions to go on staff at some point, although I never did. So for about, about for the next 20 years, from about 1970 to 1990, I was uh, a confessing cessationist and Wow. Uh, tried to dismiss my experience. I think deep down inside, I always knew it was real, but um, I was ministering and being educated in strongly cessationist context. And it wasn't until uh, really late 1990, early 1991, that I revisited the subject, studied it deeply, uh, came to embrace uh, continuationism, and uh, the Lord renewed that gift in me. And so ever since about 1990, I've uh, been uh, operating, um, practicing, ministering in the power of all these gifts ever since. Huh. So uh, let's go back to 1970 for a moment. What exactly did you see back then in California? Well, I... Um, was it more just teaching, or was it uh, people speaking in tongues? Or Well, it was two things. First was I had a, an encounter with what was then known as the CWLF which was, stands for the Christian World Liberation Front. And it was basically a group of hippies on the campus of Cal Berkeley who had come to faith in Jesus. And I spent a few days with them, and uh, it was really um, a very different, challenging experience, to say the least. But toward the end of the summer, I attended a Bible study there with uh, the other people who were on the, the, the project with Campus Crusade. And a man by the name of Harold Bredesen was present. Harold Bredesen was one of the leading figures in the charismatic renewal in the 1960s. He was a Lutheran pastor, and he talked about this thing called the gift of tongues, and he prayed for me, gave me a book to read, and that's what really launched my interest. And I, I started reading and studying everything I could about it. And again, when God gave me this gift in 1970, in October of 70, uh, it was totally by surprise. I wasn't trying to speak in tongues. Uh, it was a it was a remarkable, uh, just kind of an invasion of the Holy Spirit into my life. Wow. And that's kind of what got it all started. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating that you weren't really looking for it, and it, it happened to you, but then you stepped away from it for 20 years. 
I and did. Then it came knocking at your door again. So that's that's really an unusual case, I think. It probably is. It probably is. You know, I'm not happy to say that for those 20 years that I uh, kind of quenched the spirit in my life, but I did. Uh, I was uh, all about um, precision in theology, which I'm still all about, but not to the point of uh, suppressing the work of the spirit of my life. So, yeah, it was an unusual time. I, I don't know how else to explain it other than God was very, very patient with me. Yeah. So let's talk about the the biblical case for tongues or for any of the various gifts and, and miracles and this sort of thing. Where would you go to, to establish that? Well, I think several places. I think when you read Acts 2 and the events of the day of Pentecost, it sounds as if Peter is saying that um, these phenomena are to characterize the New Covenant age with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's poured out on all flesh. Talked about young men, old men, women. Uh, right, the prophecy from Joel. Yeah, that they will uh, prophesy. They will uh, experience dreams and visions. And, of course, these are the very people who in Acts chapter 2 were, uh, were speaking in tongues. And then I, I, I see nothing but positive affirmations of it throughout scripture. The only place where there's any kind of negativity is in the abuse of spiritual gifts by some in the church at Corinth. Um, But Paul's response to their abuse wasn't to abolish it, wasn't to forbid it. It was to correct it and say, no, this is how you do it. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's the role it plays in the life of the local church and in corporate gatherings. And here is what has to happen uh, for that to occur. So Throughout the New Testament, I see a positive presentation of spiritual gifts that are given for the building up of the body. Um, I don't see anything negative or anything to be fearful of. No, and never once do the apostles suggest that we should be afraid of the Spirit of God or afraid of uh, the experience of these particular gifts. And then, you know, there is just, as far as I can tell, not a single text in Scripture that suggests that these gifts were designed for only the first 50 years of the church's life. Uh There's simply not any hard, explicit biblical evidence for the notion of cessationism. Now, what about Uh, you earlier? You had said that you had kind of taken on board that doctrine of cessationism. What was the biblical case that that you held to in those days? Was it just 1 Corinthians 13, that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away? Yeah, that was part of it. Of course, now I think that's one of the strongest texts for continuationism, because I think the perfect there is clearly a reference to the state of affairs that is that is brought to us at the second coming of Jesus. And so I think he's saying that these gifts will continue until uh, the return of Christ at the end of history. So I find kind of been a a complete 180 on that passage. In fact, there are very few cessationists who will appeal to that passage any longer. Okay. Hmm. My good friend Tom Schreiner, who wrote a book on spiritual gifts and calls himself a modified cessationist, has actually said that that's the one passage that uh, almost convinces him to be a continuationist. So, But I I, I would appeal to that passage. And then there were other arguments, but most of them honestly, were fear-based rather than biblically-based. It was, I don't want to be identified with those extreme fanatics that I see on TV, Um, so offended by some of the abuses that I witnessed, as most of us have at some time or another. And it was this fear of guilt by association and 
Well, God, goodness, if, if embracing all the spiritual gifts means I'm going to act and behave like that, I'm going to stay as far away from it as I can. So there was a lot of um, prejudice against certain um, extreme expressions in the charismatic subculture that contributed as much, if not more than anything else, uh, to my cessationism. And uh, over the years, what, what sorts of miracles have you seen that inform your confidence on this issue? Because you're, you know, as far as the way you're speaking here and the way you present on different websites, I mean, this is not a gray area for you. I mean, it's available today, and people can tap into this. So what have you seen over the years? Goodness, where would I even begin? <laughs> uh, certainly, the, uh, the, re- the way in which I received the gift of tongues in 1970 certainly confirmed. And again, let me, let me make this very clear to, to people who are listening to this. I don't believe in the validity of the gifts today because I've experienced anything. Uh, I believe it because I see it in Scripture. Um, by the way, let me just, if I can be allowed to uh, uh, make a quick endorsement of a couple of books. Sure. I have written, just published this summer, a book called The Language of Heaven, Crucial Questions About Speaking in Tongues. It's a 250-page book in which I go through every text in Scripture on the subject of tongues. I answer every question, every objection, present, a, I think, a pretty solid case for their validity today. And then I have a, a very long book coming out next year from Zondervan called Understanding Spiritual Gifts, A Comprehensive Guide. It's going to be about 350 pages. It's a very extensive, detailed treatment of the subject from every angle. So, um, but, and, and I tell some stories in, in, in that, but certainly um, my experience has confirmed what I think the Bible teaches, but I don't base my beliefs just solely on what I may or may not have experienced. But we have seen numerous healings over the years. Um, I think the first one we saw was in about 1991 when I was pastoring in uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma. Well, look, can you go into that just briefly? What, what was going on? Sure. Normal Sunday morning, a couple came to me at church before the service. They said, um, our, our uh, newborn son, his name was Tommy, was um, uh, diagnosed with a severe liver failure. It wasn't jaundice. I mean, he was going to have to have a liver transplant. And they said the doctor told him to come back in Monday and they would schedule, uh, put him on the list for a liver transplant. And if he didn't get it, he would he probably wouldn't live. Wow. And they said, can, can you pray for him? I said, well, sure. So we all gathered around as elders after the service. We anointed him with oil, prayed for him. And uh, something happened to me in that moment that has only happened one other time in my entire life. So I don't want people to get the idea this is a, a daily occurrence. I knew that the boy was healed. I mean, I had the most unshakable surge of supernatural confidence that I've ever experienced. And I've prayed for probably thousands of people over the years. And uh, only once have I ever said to somebody, you're healed. And I did. I told his parents, he's healed. And they were shocked because they knew that was not my standard method of operation. And they uh, went in Monday morning and he was completely and totally healed. In fact, uh, they've written up the detailed account of it. We've got the medical records, the testimony of the physicians involved, and they all to a person say there's no explanation for this. Um, We have no way of accounting for it other than a miracle occurred. So that was the first time it happened. Um, We've had numerous prophetic revelatory experiences through um, dreams that um, came to pass in empirically verifiable ways. 
Um, I remember, I'll just give you one other quick example. Uh, this was January of 91. I was at a conference in California and I was still a little tentative, still not real convinced of the validity of these things, but um, I was invited to a room at the Anaheim Convention Center where there was some private ministry going on. And uh, they said, just sit at the back of the room and watch and listen and observe. So I did. After about an hour, the room was empty. I was the only one left. And a group of individuals at the front who had been ministering to these people called me up. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. <clears throat> they, a gentleman looked at me and he said, uh, he said, I want to tell you what you've been praying in your hotel room the last three nights. Wow. And he proceeded to quote my prayers to me verbatim. And I was so stunned by that. I kept a poker face. I didn't le let on that he was, that he was <laughs> correct. Um, I, I literally went back to my hotel room, got out on my hands and knees, not to pray. I looked for a bugging device. I thought ah. my friend had bugged the room and passed on this information uh, to this uh, minister, this prophet, in order to dupe me and get me involved oh, in a cult. Wow. And then I suddenly realized, wait a minute, Sam. Why do you think it's so uh, hard to believe that God actually heard your prayers and then revealed those to another individual who could speak them back to you for your encouragement and your edification, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3? And it suddenly dawned on me, why am I shocked by this? Do I really believe there's a God who hears and a God who speaks? And the answer is yes. So over the years, we have had um, multiple instances of that sort of thing occur. So um, I've seen uh, numerous healings, not as many as I want. By no means is everybody that I pray for healed. Um, but I'm going to continue to pray because I think that's what the Bible tells me to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we see this happen in our lives. We've seen it happen in the lives of numerous others as well, and um, it's a very active part of the ministry here at Bridgeway. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What would you say to Bible-believing Christians who are cessationists today by way of assuaging some of their, their fears? Because I agree with you. I really haven't seen any kind of biblical case other than that very idiosyncratic reading of 1 Corinthians 13, that one verse there. But but I think you're right about the fear. So what would you say to assuage that fear? I mean, people see laughing in the spirit, drunk in the spirit, barking in the spirit, all kinds of spiritual behavior that's not uh, listed in Scripture, and sure. they they just get sour on the whole thing, and they're like, "This is a zoo. God is not the God of confusion." That's right. He isn't. But in in every sphere of Christianity. Let's just think across the broad swath, as it were, of professing evangelical believers. Everything from extreme Bible fundamentalists to uh, very rigid, and not, not that all Presbyterians are rigid, but very strict and austere expressions of Christianity. There are abuses in every area. Um, everything that we are given by God, sadly, can be abused can be misused, can be taken to an extreme. And I would just say to people, stop making your judgments about what the Bible says based on how people have either abused it or used it. Uh, I made a decision many years ago, um, like I don't want to go into all the details about the circumstances when it came about, but I made a decision that I would never justify disobedience to Scripture because I saw somebody else badly abusing spiritual gifts. 
And I've kept that vow to God uh, all these many years, because I think what we do is we, I, I have what I call the 11th commandment. It's thou shalt not do at all what others do poorly. <laughs> and I think what happens is we see people do things poorly and we think, well, well, then I'm not going to go anywhere near that. If that's what believing in the, the movement of the spirit entails, then I'm just going to stay as far away as I can. And I would just caution people against basing their conclusions about what the Bible teaches on what they have seen and how they have been offended by extremes and fanatics in various sectors of the body of Christ. I would just challenge people, you know, on what basis are you um, grounding your belief and your behavior? Is it the word of God or is it the, the abuses that you have seen in the body of Christ? There have always been abuses. There always will be. But when I read the New Testament, I don't see uh, prohibition in the light of abuse. I mean, you, we read, you think about what was going on in Corinth, and you think, why didn't Paul just say to the Corinthians, look, folks, you all have so badly messed up when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit that you just need to, to ban this, that you need to write it into your bylaws. You'll never allow this ever again in your church services. He doesn't do no, that. he doesn't. Instead, he gives them correction. He gives them guidance. Um, now, let, let me mention another book. Um, I didn't write it, but it's a very helpful book written by a fellow named Andrew Gabriel. It's called Simply Spirit-Filled, Simply Spirit-Filled. And it's written for a lay audience. It's not technical. It's not written for scholars. And Andrew talks about these things you just mentioned, you know, people falling down, um, various extreme expressions that happen during seasons of heightened spiritual intensity. And he talks about what do they mean? What conclusions should you draw? Are they valid? Could this be God working in an unusual way or not? How might we know the difference? And it's a really helpful book that I have recommended. It's only been available for about uh, 10, 11 months. came out in early 2019. Um, I would highly recommend it. So that's my primary uh, recommendation to my cessationist friends is um, if you really believe, as I hear them say all the time, that they want to base their theology on the Bible and not their experience, right. then do that. Stop basing it on your lack of experience or your experience of people who do it badly. Go back to the text of Scripture, and as you read it, ask yourself, is God telling me through his word that he only intended for these gifts to be operative for the first 50 or 60 years of the church's life? Or is this what he has given us uh, to help us build up the body of Christ and expand the kingdom until the second coming of Jesus? Now, there are now there are nine or so uh, listed manifestations in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Uh, would you say that, that that kind of hymns in the Spirit, or that the Spirit... Uh, is able to manifest in these other ways. I mean, you you mentioned this book, but I haven't read it yet, so I'm just curious what what your take on it is. Well, I think there are actually about 20 or 21 spiritual gifts. When you compare Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, uh, Ephesians 4, uh -huh. 1 Peter chapter 2, I see about 19, 20, 21 gifts. I also am not prepared to say that those are the only gifts that God right, might that's give. That's what I'm asking, is is because we, we're all very Bible-based, and I think that's good, and it, and it, it provides some sort of safety, but 
there was an incident in the Old Testament where Saul took off all his clothes and prophesied all night. I mean, that... <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that seems... I mean, it's biblical, but that seems way out there from where I'm sitting. Uh, so, you know, how do we... I guess, how do we know, okay, well, that is just enthusiasm. That's not of God. That's just people that are swept away by enthusiasm. And this one over here is of God. How do you make that distinction? Well, what we're really talking about here is not so much spiritual gifts. We're talking about expressions uh, that people claim are the result of the Spirit of God working in them during seasons of revival and heightened spiritual renewal. And you go back throughout church history, and you see that in virtually every season of genuine revival, there were manifestations of the Spirit, physical phenomena that occurred. It happened under Jonathan Edwards in the, in the First Great Awakening. It's happened multiple times throughout history. It happened at, during the Welsh Revival um, under Evan Roberts. When the Spirit of God is poured out in an extraordinary manner, in other words, when He manifests His presence— with heightened power, heightened intensity, there are certain physiological reactions, and that's understandable. We are finite, frail, physical creatures, and when we encounter the world of the supernatural in a unique and extraordinary way, uh, it, it sort of makes sense that there would be physiological reactions. Um, and so how do we know whether these are of God or not? Well, you have to ask the question, what's the fruit? What's the result? What are the consequences in a person's life? Uh, I've often said to people, I really don't care whether you fall down or not. My question is, are you any different once you get back up? Is there is there a transformation in your character? Are you more like Jesus? Are you more in love with his people and with scripture? Are you more concerned with lost souls? Are you more humble than you were before? So any so-called encounter with the Spirit of God, re regardless of the physiological, vocal, verbal, visible, visible effects of it, the way we discern whether or not it was truly of the Spirit is, does it make us more like Jesus? Does it transform our character? Does it honor Christ in the way that we react to it? Now, granted, there are a lot of people out there, and, we, and you know them as well as I do. You see them all the time on TV. You read about them who are hankering after some sort of heightened emotional encounter with the supernatural, and that's all they care about. Well, I don't really care about those kinds of concerns. My concern is, what has it done in your life? Do, do, you, do you find yourself more hungry for Scripture than you were before? Do you find yourself more concerned with the destiny of lost souls than you did before? So I, I, don't, I, I think it's dangerous for us to get swept up in trying to analyze the nature of these various physio physiological phenomena. And we need to ask the question, what difference does it make? How am I changed or how am I not? Um, am I focused on self? Am I, am I elevating my experience to levels uh, of importance that the Bible doesn't endorse? Or do I find myself elevating Jesus ever more as central and supreme in my life and my ministry? You made me think of an analogy I'm curious what you think about it. Uh, let's say you have a, a fireplace, you have wood, and then you have the fire burning. And uh, if the, uh, the the spiritual exciting stuff is is the fire, uh, what what I see sometimes people doing is they just focus on the fire. But what you're saying is no, focus on the wood that produces the fire, which would be 
following Christ, you know, affection for God, studying the Bible, these sorts of things, and then the fire will be there. But you, you do, or I do at least sometimes, see folks where they're, they're just chasing after experience. They're chasing after these different people with healing ministries. And I, I've attended one of them, uh, or maybe two of them, before, and I was just like totally unimpressed. You know, they, they put the person up in a chair and they fiddled around with their feet to, to show that they just healed their back or something. It just seemed like a parlor trick. And yet there, there's a whole crowd of people there that are just following these different movements on from place to place just because, you know, they, they want to see the fire. That's true. There, there are undoubtedly people like that. Um, my response, first of all, is um, I, I, I trust that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, I, I don't want to uh, come down heavily on okay. them or hard on them. I want to encourage them. I want to challenge them. Um, I don't want to be so offended by what they claim that I shut off my own heart to the possibility that God might genuinely be doing something of a supernatural and life-changing nature. So, um, again, uh, just this, our conversation over about the last 10 or 15 minutes is the primary reason, in my opinion, why people are skittish about the supernatural and embrace cessationism it's not because they found that taught in Scripture. It's because they were offended. They they saw things that uh, they thought were manipulative or were uh, disingenuous or were used as a way to raise more money in an offering. Um, I'm offended by those things as well, but I don't allow those kinds of abuses to shape or to dictate what I'm going to believe the Bible actually teaches me. And that is a challenge that's very, very difficult for people to embrace. It is, it's so easy to be dismissive of everything of a, of a supernatural or spiritual nature because of the offense that we feel in our hearts, and we, we recoil at it. Uh, I can still remember, I, I remember watching a television program, this was back in the, the early 90s, and a very famous so-called TV evangelist, and you'd know his name if I mentioned it, and I watched him praying for the sick and supposedly prophesying, and it was so bad, so dishonoring to the Lord, and so manipulative that I, I turned off the TV and I found myself saying, well, if that's what it means to be charismatic, I will never go there. And I mean the conviction of the Lord came on me, and that's when I basically made that promise to, to the Lord. Lord, I, I, I'm going to need your help but I could easily justify my disobedience to, to your word by thinking about the abuses that I just witnessed. And I know that's not what you want me to do. You want me to faithfully follow your word and step out in faith and pray for the sick and minister in the power of these gifts and, uh, and not to justify failing to do that by saying, well, I don't want to be lumped in the same category as that guy I just saw on TV. Um, that is a massive challenge, and it is, it's not an easy one for Christians to embrace. Yeah, good point. Good point. Uh, now, have you had a lot of criticism from other brothers and sisters about your stand on this issue? Uh, sure. Yeah. I've, uh, there are some who've read my books, or at least say they've read them and, and don't find them persuasive. I don't find, however, that their criticism is textually grounded. In other words, I don't find that there is a great deal of 
hey, Sam, what about this passage? Or you misinterpreted this, this text. I find the criticism to be, well, we just don't believe God does that today. Or, well, does that mean that you're in, uh, supportive of that guy on TV who throws his, his sport coat at people and knocks them over? Or um, do you, you believe that all these leg lengthening acts are, are, are genuine? Or are they just simply, as you said, a parlor trick? Or um, the, the argument basically, again, is this guilt by association and if you believe in the and all these spiritual gifts operatives today, in fact, I'll just mention this. Perhaps the single greatest criticism is that my belief in these gifts undermines the finality and sufficiency of Scripture. That's the number one objection that I hear. The idea that God still speaks through revelatory gifts like prophecy and word of knowledge. Um, they say, well, how can that be and us maintain the finality and sufficiency of the Bible? That's the number one objection that I hear today. How do you respond to that? It's very simple. I ask the question, where do you think that I get this idea that God still speaks through revelatory gifts? It is from uh -huh. the all-sufficient scriptures. It's the Bible that tells me, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. It's the Bible that tells me in 1 Thessalonians 5 not to despise prophecy, but to test everything. In other words, it's not, it's not as if we who are charismatic have, have created this uh, idea of spiritual gifts and the revelatory work of the Spirit. Uh, we didn't come up with it. The Bible did. So it seems to me that if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, you have to be a continuationist because it's Scripture that tells me the nature of these gifts and how they operate and how they function. And, and I would just simply say, if in fact— these gifts that the Bible endorses and encourages us to pursue, if those gifts undermine the Bible's own authority, why doesn't the Bible tell us that? Why is it that no author ever suggests that, hey, listen to me, um, these gifts that I'm talking about are only designed to operate until the final canon of Scripture is in place, and then you have to completely dispense with them, and God will withdraw them because they will be a threat to the authority of his written word. Why is it that we don't have a single syllable in Scripture that says that? So it's because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture that I am a practicing, charismatic believer. Yeah, also Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 14 that we're supposed to weigh the prophecies. Uh, yes. And presumably we weigh whatever word of knowledge or word of wisdom that somebody might bring forth against Scripture. So Scripture is itself able to correct and judge any kind of erroneous manifestation, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you and I today are in a much better position to exercise careful judgment and evaluation of alleged prophetic words than they were in the time of the New Testament. Why? Because we have the final canon of Scripture in our hands. They didn't. Right. The, the, the canon was emerging. B biblical books were still being written. Book of Revelation obviously hadn't even been written, what, 30, 40 years after the time that uh, 1 Corinthians was written. So, yes, we have the, the standard of Holy Scripture by which to judge and evaluate any claim that anybody makes um, in saying that something is of the Spirit of God. So, yes, we, um, I don't think we need to be afraid of these revelatory gifts. We just need to be biblical in our evaluation of their validity. Now, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned before about— prayer for healing. I'm a pastor too, and I've prayed for people, and 
I've been in situations, I've seen death, I've been in hospitals, and um, it's just so hard on the soul when prayers go unanswered, right? Uh, so I was just curious, how do you deal with that? I mean, if you uh, you have a time to pray for people, and uh, you know, we, we mentioned the extraordinary incidents of that baby that was healed, and boy, I mean, that is just phenomenal. Uh, but what about all the other folks? I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? I am no different from any other Christian when it comes to um, prayers that seemingly are unanswered. Um, I'm frustrated by it. I'm confused by it. I don't have an explanation for it. All that I know is that James 5.16 tells me, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I remember something that one of my mentors in the faith said many years ago, said, I would rather pray for a thousand people and only one of them get healed and live with the frustration of 999 who don't than not to pray for any of them and no one gets healed. I'm willing to live with people not being healed for the sake of that one who is, even regardless of how infrequent that may be. Uh, the bottom line is, uh, once again, we cannot allow our experience or our lack of it to dictate what we're going to do when it comes to obeying the Bible. Are we going to obey scripture or not? Are we going to pray for the sick or not? And I'm going to, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to do it as faithfully and fervently and as frequently as I can and leave it up to God. It's ultimately in his hands at that point what he chooses to do with any particular individual. So we pray for the sick after every Sunday service. Uh, we have special prayer meetings. We have private um, healing and prophetic ministry sessions available for people. We do see um, some remarkable miracles occur, but certainly not nearly as many as we would like. But I'm not going to take the, uh, the times that we don't see a miracle and add them up and say, well, because there are far more of these than, than we see uh, tangible answers, therefore I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm going to quit. I'm going to doubt God's word. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm committed to being obedient to scripture and doing what, what I'm told to do, uh, confident in God's goodness and in his greatness. And um, ultimately, uh, whatever happens in the outcome of that, as long as I'm being obedient, I'm being successful. Success is not measured by how many miracles occur. It's measured by how obedient I am to the to the commandments and the exhortations of Scripture. Let's talk about the uh, the service at Bridgeway. Presumably, you have music, you have a, a sermon, and then after the service or during the service, at some point, you uh, do do you guys have an opportunity for people to speak in tongues and with an interpretation or prophecy or healing, or how does it, how does it work on a practical scale at your church? Sure. Yeah. Our order of service is a little different from, from most churches. The sermon comes first. I preach up front and then we respond with at least 30 minutes of uninterrupted singing and praise. Uh, so we think our worship, our congregational celebration and singing should come as a response to the truths of God's word. So that's how we uh, structure the, the uh, order of the service. There are often times when coming right out of my sermon, I will pause and I'll lead a corporate prayer ministry at that very moment. Maybe something the Lord laid on my heart about a particular issue in people's lives. Maybe 
Maybe there's individuals really struggling with with shame for sexual sin, or uh, there are marriages that are uh, that are collapsing, or maybe uh, I'll have a strong urging to pray for people um, with um, lower back problems, let's say, and I'll just stop and I'll say, all right, and I'll identify the issue and I'll ask the people to stand. And then our people will gather around them, lay hands on them, and we'll pray for them for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And then we'll move into the time of uh, singing and corporate worship. Sometimes in the middle of our singing, uh, I will feel uh, you know, a prompting from the Lord to pause and focus maybe on a, one of the truths expressed in one of the lyrics that we have just sung. And we'll do the same thing. Uh, typically, at the end of our corporate singing, we may have, and it's usually... It's usually fairly regular. I'd say at least three out of four Sundays, someone will come to me. Sometimes it's several individuals who believe that the Lord has revealed something to them. Um, we have, I make a decision. In fact, I have I have a process by which I, I, I make the decision on how to respond to that. I write about it in my book, Practicing the Power. I have a whole chapter on how we can how we exercise gifts in corporate worship in that book. And um Sometimes we'll allow that individual to speak from the platform. Sometimes I will communicate the word on their behalf. Um, and then we always ha- we have trained prayer ministers. We probably have 200, 250 people that have gone through our prayer training. They come up front. They're available to pray for the sick. They minister one-on-one to them at that time. Uh, as far as tongues goes, I've been in the church 11 and a half years. We've never yet on a Sunday morning had anybody speak in tongues out loud that required interpretation. If that does occur, we'll do exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. We'll ask for an interpretation. If there is none forthcoming, then I'll take the opportunity to teach them uh, what Paul says uh, about the exercise of that gift in the corporate assembly. But up until now, uh, that hasn't happened. It's happened in small group settings and in private prayer settings, but never in the corporate gathering of the church. I see. During the the uh, healing service, is the music still playing, or is that like after everything's pretty much wrapped up? It's a little bit of both. Sometimes the worship team will just uh, play instrumentally and quietly in the background. Sometimes these kinds of ministry moments will happen while uh, the corporate worship is going full blast, full blown. Okay. Um, uh, it just depends. We We don't have a we don't have a set liturgy, as it were, as to how we'll handle those situations. Uh, we just try to follow the prompting of the Spirit and do it in the most efficient and helpful way possible. Well, uh, I really uh, appreciate the the nuts and bolts side of things. <laughs> uh, as you know, we're we here in our church, uh, Living Hope Community Church. You know, we're we're trying to figure out how do we do these things and how do we live them out in an, in a way that is authentic and scripture honoring and yet also not so excessively stiff either. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate your, your model there. May I just suggest something to you again, if I can take advantage of the moment. Yeah. Over the years, I was getting questions like the ones you're asking me today from pastors all over the country and around the world about, you know, I'm a, I, I think I'm a continuationist when it comes to the, the gifts of the spirit. Theologically, I'm there. But I don't know how to do it. Right. I don't know what to do. I'm I'm terrified of, of 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 you know causing trouble in my church and driving people away. And how do I move forward in practical steps in implementing these things in the life of my church? And I got I got so tired of writing the same email response over and over and over again that I wrote a book. 
and my book, Practicing the Power, uh, is, is explicitly devoted to providing practical guidelines on how to develop a prayer ministry in your church, how prophecy functions in church, how you pray for healing in the church, how you avoid manipulation, uh, how, how does worship factor into the to the way that things uh, happen on a Sunday morning. So it's really a practical guidebook, not just for pastors and elders, but for average Christians as to how they can begin to take steps forward in implementing and facilitating the work of the Spirit without blowing their church up. So Yes, um, we don't want to blow the church up. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for talking with me today. I appreciate it. Any uh, concluding remarks or anything else you'd like to say? No, um, I appreciate the opportunity. I I, uh, I would just again, once again, uh, just uh, encourage uh, those who are listening to um, just not allow your past experience or the offenses you might have taken at what people have done to dictate what you're going to do, but allow the Word of God to shape your thinking and your ministry um, and and measure success not by uh, what happens, but by uh, the, the extent to which you faithfully obey what God says to do. All right. That sounds good to me. Well, that's it for this interview. Thanks for listening through to the end here. Just so you know, I do have those books that Storms mentioned in the show notes for this episode. I also wanted to mention something we didn't get into in the episode here, which is the whole subject of church history. And what we find there is, in fact, a continuation of the spiritual manifestations that we see in the New Testament. And uh, sometimes people have made the claim that the Pentecostal movement at the dawn of the 20th century started this interest in speaking in tongues or prophecy and healing and so on. Um, that's simply not the case. That's, that's, a, that's just a, a historically false statement. Uh, I, I would even just refer you to Wikipedia to disprove that. You'll find lots of historical precursors to the Pentecostal movement. And another person I, I would like to mention is David Berceau, who I, I don't, th- he's an Anabaptist. I don't think you would classify him as in any way a charismatic. But uh, his research into the first three centuries of Christian history after the New Testament reveals quite a significant amount of Holy Spirit activity that would be associated with Pentecostals today. So I'll leave a a link to his lecture on this very same subject and uh, leave it to your consideration. See See what you think. If you would like to leave a comment, please come on to restitutio.org and find episode 310 are the gifts of the Holy Spirit available today and drop your comment. We'd love to engage and to hear multiple viewpoints on this subject. And I look forward to reading those. Thanks everyone for listening. I'll catch you next week. And remember the truth has nothing to fear.